to Joshua chapter number 9. Joshua chapter number 9 is where our scripture is going to be tonight. Joshua chapter number 9. We're going to begin reading in verse number 1. Joshua chapter number 9. Joshua chapter number 9, we'll begin reading in verse number 1. So here are a couple pages turned, so I'll give you just another moment or so. Joshua chapter number 9, begin reading in verse number 1. The Bible says, And it came to pass when all the kings which were on this side, Jordan, in the hills and in the valleys, and in all the coasts of the great sea, over against Lebanon, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, heard thereof that they gathered themselves together to fight with Joshua and with Israel with one accord. And when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua had done unto Jericho, and and heard what Joshua had done unto Jericho and to Ai, they did work willily and went and made as if they had been ambassadors and took old sacks upon their asses and wine bottles old and rent and bound up, and old shoes and clouded upon their feet, and old garments upon them. And all, the, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua unto the camp at Gilgal and said unto him and to the men of Israel, We be come from a far country. Now, or, now therefore make ye a league with us. Skip down to verse number 14 with me if you would. Verse number 14. And the men took of their victuals and asked not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a league with them to let them live. And the princes of the congregation swear unto them. Have you ever watched perhaps uh, some sort of action movie where you've got some sort of uh, villain and that villain takes some hostages and then that villain, he reaches out to whoever's in power. Maybe in, I've seen in some movies it's, it's the president or sometimes it's you know, some big ambassador or whatever it might be. And that, that, that villain, he's got these many demands and he says, I want, you know, I want a helicopter to you know, the Bahamas and I want $10 million in unmarked bills and blah, blah, blah. And then maybe the president, he's there in his, in his, uh, in his boardroom. He's got all of his advisors, very intense, very dramatic. He's on the phone with them. And he's thinking, well, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? How are we going to handle this situation? And then in dramatic fashion, the president slams his hand down on the desk and declares, we don't negotiate with terrorists. It's always very dramatic and things like that. But the ideology of what he's trying to say is essentially this. Why on earth would I negotiate with somebody who has a track record of dishonesty? Why would I negotiate with somebody who I know doesn't have my best interest in heart and I have no assurance whatsoever that they're going to keep their word? Why would I do that? And yet here tonight, I just simply want to ask this. We sit there and we go, yeah, that's right. Why would you negotiate with someone so villainous and heinous and evil? So I want to ask this question tonight. Why do we as Christians sometimes find ourselves negotiating with the devil? Why do we do it? Why do we sometimes as Christians find ourselves trying to see how close we can get to the line without crossing it? And so my message tonight is rather simple. It's entitled, Why We Don't Negotiate with the Devil. Why we don't negotiate with the devil. And so tonight, I see three steps in this passage that Joshua and the Gibeonites experience that lead to negotiating 
with the devil. Step number one is we fall for a deception. We fall for a deception. And so what I've noticed here is the children of Gibeon, they come to the children of Israel. And these children, they come, and what they do is they, they present something in a deceptive way. Now, one of the number one things that we need to remember about the devil is that he is, above all else, a liar. The devil is a liar. The Bible makes that quite clear. The Bible says that the devil is the father of lies, and in him is no truth at all. But not only is the devil a liar, the devil is a master deceiver. The devil is a master at not only just telling you things that are blatantly false, but the devil is really good at portraying things in a way which makes them appear almost harmless. The devil's very good at manipulating situations and, and weaving together some words that make something sound justifiable, that make something sound understandable, that make something sound, well, if you just bend it a little bit here, it's no big deal. I think we've all learned that sometimes things are not what they seem. And so I decided to have a little bit of fun with this tonight. And we've got some pictures that are a little bit deceptive if you don't look at them closely. So Rodney, let's go ahead and put the first one up there. First one up there. Now, I don't know about you, but it looks like that baby has a gigantic hand. He should really get that checked out. But more than that, I'd be concerned with a full-grown man having an arm that, that's small. No, you see, this picture, if you weren't looking at it very closely, it would appear as if the baby has a gigantic hand and the, the man has a very small hand. Let's go to the next one. Now, this next one's probably my favorite of the bunch because some of you just looked at this and said, ooh, puppies. But some of you, though you may not want to admit it, just looked at that and said, mmm, fried chicken. If you didn't look at this very closely and didn't perhaps notice the tongue of one of the dogs in the background, if you were like me, when I saw this picture, I thought that was a big old slab of fried chicken until the caption essentially told you this wouldn't be very tasty. Now we've got one more, one more up here, here tonight. Now I don't know what kind of gel this guy uses, but I need to get me some. Man, I, I'll tell you what, if I could get my hair to have that much hold in it, it, it this is, this is, that is incredible. I don't know how he does it. But here's the thing about all these pictures. With all, every single one of these pictures, they're portrayed in a way, they're at an angle in which it would make them appear as though they were something that they're not. In each instance, if you were to take the, the camera and shift it a few degrees in either direction, it would become quite clear that these things are not what they seem. Now, this is what the devil is a master at doing. He's a master at positioning the camera just right to make something appear as if, well, there's no downside here. Well, hey, you know, hey, this is, this is okay. This is all right. Now, let's think about this in the context of the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites, though native to Canaan, portrayed themselves in a way that seemed harmless to the Israelites. The Gibeonites, think about it, if you think about it, in some cases here, didn't truly lie, they just bent the truth a little bit, quote-unquote. 
They said that they're from a very far country. When you, and you know what? Depending on your definition of far, they could be telling the truth. Well, their bread was moldy. They didn't lie about that. Their, their clothes were raggedy and old. They didn't lie about that. My point is not that the Gibeonites were right in doing what they did. My point is, is that if you wanted to believe them, you could talk yourself into it. If you really wanted to, say, say if you were Joshua and you had a desire to make that alliance, you could do it. And probably still find a way to not defile your conscience. Well, you're saying, well, preacher, you're clearly ignoring certain things. There's certain things that the Gibeonites said and that they did that clearly indicate that this was wrong. But here's the thing. Sometimes we do the same thing with the devil. Sometimes we do. Let's lay out this process quite simply. We want something. The devil provides a way for us to obtain it. And as a result, we talk ourselves into it. We talk ourselves into it. Well, is that really what that verse means? Well... Does that really apply to this situation? Well, well, you don't understand. This is special circumstances. And as much as we may not want to admit it, sometimes sin is enticing. No matter how much we want to deny it. Sometimes sin is very enticing. And sometimes we want to talk ourselves into it. let's say you know what let's give this example let's say you knew someone who was an alcoholic now imagine that this person was an alcoholic they come to church they get saved they get their life on the right they even join the ru ministry and they're they're getting their life back on track and they're they're making progress and they're setting goals and they've thrown out all the alcohol in their their life and they're not fully out of the woods yet but they're but they're making progress Now imagine that that you see them walk into a bar. And I'm not talking talking about, you know, a a family restaurant that serves alcohol. I'm talking about a full-blown bar. Like, that is what it is there for. So, of course, you follow them in and you say, hey, man, what what are you doing? What what are you doing, man? I I thought you were trying to get over this alcoholism. I thought this was something that was in your past. I thought you didn't want to do this anymore. Can you imagine the look on your face if they turned to you and said, well, okay, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Here's here's my thought process. I thought if I could come in here and I could go all night without ordering an alcoholic drink, it'll strengthen me. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to surround myself with alcohol. And if I can surround myself with alcohol and learn to say no to it, then surely it'll strengthen me. Now, I'd venture to say that pretty much all of us in here would go, dude, what are you doing? If you want to get away from something, you don't surround yourself with it. You get away from it. You stay as far away from the bar as possible. You stay as far away from that sin as possible. But let's, let's take another example that's maybe a little bit closer to home. Let's say we've got a teenager or a, a college student in this room. Let's say they've got a five-page paper. Just big enough that it takes a, a good amount of work, but, but not large enough that it makes you go, <coughs> doesn't make you cough, but, but not large enough that it makes you go, i got to get started on this right away. 
So let's say that that high school student, they sit down, they say, you know what, I could do the responsible thing here. I could get started on it now and work on it gradually, maybe do, you know, one page a week and one page a week or so, and then, and then it's due in a month, so you know what, I could work on it gradually. But you know what? I got it. If I do it now, I'll be relying on myself and my preparation, and I don't want to do that. I want to rely on God for my paper. So you know what I'm going to do? I've got it. I'm going to wait until the last possible minute when I am absolutely exhausted and I have no will to write this paper, and then the only person who could possibly give me the strength to write this paper could be God. And that's when I'm going to write it because I want to rely on God. Mom, Dad, can you imagine if one of your children walked up to you and told you that? Well, Mom, I would write it now, but I'm trying to rely on God. I'm trying to grow my faith, Mom. I can imagine some of you would probably look back at your child and go, you know what, I'll grow your faith. You know what, you're going to get started on that paper right now, and you're going to have faith that I'm not going to whoop you into next week if you do that. I'll grow your faith real fast. But the idea is sometimes when we want something that we know is wrong, we'll find a way to talk ourselves into it. We'll find a way to justify it. And this is one of the biggest reasons why you can't open that door. You can't even allow yourself to negotiate. The best way to win the battle sometimes is just to not fight it. Sometimes the best way to win the battle is to simply say, I'm not even going to allow myself to be put in a position where I can be tempted with this sin. Now you might be thinking, Pastor Parker, do you really think I'm that dumb? Do you really think that I'm dumb enough to be duped like that? No, it's quite the opposite. I think you're that smart, and that's what worries me. I think you're smart enough that if you want something, that you're smart enough to figure out a way to get to it. And that's why I say this. So step one, we see that we fall for a deception. We fall for a deception. Number two, we ignore proper counsel. We ignore proper counsel. Look at, look at me at verses 14 and 15. And the men took of their victuals and asked not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. Likely the biggest mistake of this entire incident occurs in verse number 14. Here's the thing. The children of Israel are being led through the promised land by God. God is the one sustaining them. God is the one giving them the battle strategies. And in a moment that was one of probably the most major decisions in their time in the promised land, they don't take time to pray. Think about how little sense that makes. God is the one leading, through, leading them through the promised land, but when an, alliance, an opportunity for an alliance comes up, they make the mistake of not spending time in prayer. One of the biggest mistakes that we can do with major decisions in our life is to make a major decision hastily and without counsel. And that's what the devil wants. He wants you to take a major decision and he wants you to make it purely based on your emotions. He wants you to make it purely based on how you feel in that moment because if you do, you're most likely going to make a mistake. 
You are. Think about it like this. If God is the captain of your ship, if God is the one steering the boat, then we ought to consult him whenever there's a change in direction. Because if we're just the ones changing direction willy-nilly, then God's not the captain. We are. But if God is truly the captain of the boat, if he's the pilot of the plane, whatever you want to say, then we ought to consult him whenever there is a change in direction. One of the best things that we can do is when a major decision is coming up, to take a second and say, you know what? Give me at least a week to pray about this. Let me take some time. Let me seek some counsel. Let me take some time and bring this before God and lay it at his feet. And when we do, we find that often we get a brand new perspective on things. We might talk to a godly mentor in our life who says, well, did you think about this? Oh, man, I, I didn't even see that. Man, I, I didn't even, ha- I had no idea. But there's something about counsel that we do need to understand. Number one, we need to understand that we need to seek out the right kind of counsel. The right kind of counsel. One of the things that I, I like to caution our teens on is getting counsel from their peers. Because the temptation I know I struggled with as a teenager was to go to somebody my age, go, what do you think? And when they backed me up, I'd go do it. The reality is, it is wise for us to go to somebody who is basically, think about it like this, if we are navigating through a storm right now, it is wise for us to go to somebody who is already on the other side of that storm, who's already driven through the storm, who can help us go, here's how I got through it. Now, we have to seek out the right counsel. It, just has to, it needs to be somebody who we know is going to be pointing us in a godly direction. Have you ever avoided somebody? Avoided somebody in their counsel because you, had, you knew if you went to them for counsel, you, did, you knew you weren't going to like what you were going to hear? I remember when I, I first began dating my wife, I was, trying, I was talking to my youth pastor about how I should handle the relationship. And I remember literally trying to talk him into giving me the thumbs up to do certain things, and he wouldn't do it. Well, surely there's an exception. I literally said that to him. I said, well, there's probably an exception to that, right? He said, no. And I'm thankful for a godly youth pastor in my life who wasn't going to back down and give me what I wanted, who was willing to look at me and say, Parker, that's not smart. Well, what about, no, Parker, that's not smart. We need people in our life who, who are going to point us in a godly direction. And one of the best things that we can do is go to somebody that we trust will point us in that godly direction and get their perspective on it. Because sometimes, again, it's really easy at times when we're in the middle of the storm to only see the storm clouds, to only see the crashing waves as we've talked about before. But when we get somebody who's outside the situation who can sit there from an unbiased perspective and say, you know what? Hey, let me, let me, I, can, I, I see what you're going through. You know what? Take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. All right? Here's, here's what you should do. Take some time. Pray about this decision. You know what? I know that job offers a lot more money. But you know what? Is that going to be beneficial for your family? Oh, man, you, I didn't even think about that. I know. You're, you're, you're in a rush. You're, it's okay. But that's why I'm here. I'm here to help you. And with the Israelites, they made a major alliance, alliance an alliance that, that forced them as they moved into the promised land to have to now not only defend their own people, but another group of people within the promised land. 
And they did all of this without spending any time in prayer, without seeking any counsel. And we'll see where it led them right here, right now. It says, now, number three, because step three is we become entangled. We become entangled. Now, here's the thing about this. Let's read, let's read verses number six. Look at verse number 16. Verse number 16 here. And it came to pass at the end of three days, they had made a league with them that they heard that they were their neighbors and that they dwelt among them. So essentially, the Gibeonites have now been found out in their deception. Verse 17, And the children of Israel journeyed and came unto their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and Chephirah and Beeroth and Kirjath-Jerim. And the children of Israel smote them not, because the princes of the congregation had sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel. And the congregation murmured against the princes, but all the princes said unto the, all the congregation, We have sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel. Now therefore we may not touch them. This we will do to them, and we will, we will even let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swear unto them. And the princes said unto them, Let them live, but let them be hewers of wood and drawers of water unto all the congregation, as the princes had promised them. And Joshua called for them, and he spake unto them, saying, Wherefore have ye beguiled us, saying, We are very far from you, when ye dwell among us? Now therefore ye are cursed, and there shall none of you be freed from being bondmen and hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. The commitment that they had made, now without proper counsel, the commitment that they had made because they had fallen for a deception, a deception that perhaps if they had prayed about it, they wouldn't have fallen for, was now forcing them to disobey a direct command from God in Deuteronomy chapter 7. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God commands Joshua, actually specifically at this time it would have been Moses, but he commands the people of Israel to utterly eradicate all inhabitants of the land of Canaan. And so now, because of this mistake that they've made, because of this alliance that they have made, because of a hasty decision and because of a deception, they are now being forced to end up having to actually break one of God's commands. We often describe the devil as having woven together a web of lies. I think in this case it's very accurate. Because it's almost like when you fall for one of the devil's lies, you begin to become entangled. Like a spider web. I think we all, if you've ever walked through a spider web, know how, just how scary you, it can be when you're walking down a sidewalk and turn into a kung fu master. What was that? But the idea here is when we make these commitments, when we allow ourselves to talk ourselves into this, we could quickly become entangled in the consequences of our choice. You ever volunteered to do something without fully realizing what you were doing? You ever volunteered for something and gotten there and gone, holy cow, what have I gotten myself into? That was me as a youth pastor. All right, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> but sometimes we look back and we go, man, I wish I would have done my homework. I, I, I wish I would have read the fine print a little bit more. I, I wish that I would have taken time to perhaps pray about this decision. And this is the game that the devil plays. He talks you into it. He weaves together a beautiful tapestry. 
of words that make you believe that this sin is justifiable. Oh, it's harmless. It's not going to do you any harm. Don't worry about it. But here's the thing. The devil knows what he's doing. He's just praying you don't. He knows exactly what he's doing. But he's praying that you don't. I think this story illustrates it quite well. Let's say you're back in high school. You're 16 years old again. Life is good. Your friend walks up to you and says, hey man, I really need some help on this chemistry test on Friday. Okay. Hey, you know what? I'll tell you what. You help me pass this chemistry test. I'll take you out to dinner at your favorite restaurant, get you whatever you want. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. Sounds like a great deal. Just help him study some. Well, sure enough, the week comes and goes, and your friend never gets in touch with you. So you think you kind of shrug, and you go, okay, well, well, no dinner. But, you know, it's not a big deal. It's, I guess it's his money. He can do whatever he wants. But then you get to the actual day of the test. You get to the day of the test. You sit down. And your friend nudges you. Hey, you ready? Ready for what? Well, you're going to help me pass this test. Whoa, no way, man. No, absolutely not. I'm not helping you cheat on this test. Whoa, 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 man. I'm not cheating. You know, in the real world, you got to be resourceful. That's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm adapting to my surroundings. I'm using my resources. And besides, you know this teacher's tests are practically so hard, they're unfair. And you know what? His, his argument is just compelling enough, and the dinner sounds just good enough. That you go, okay, all right, fine, fine. So very well, you, you go and you let him cheat on your test. So sure enough, he stays true to his word. He says, you know what, hey man, me, you, favorite, favorite restaurant, you pick it out, we're going. Okay, sounds great. So you go and you're having a great time. You're having a great time and he even, he even really treats you. He really treats you. He goes, hey man, I, I, you get whatever you, I want you to get the fancy appetizer, you get whatever you want. And sure enough, that's what you do. Beautiful appetizer with all the fanfare. And, oh, man, it's so good. And you get a decadent, delicious entree from your favorite restaurant. Oh, my goodness. It, this, this food is unbelievable. This is awesome. He even tells you, you know, you know what? Splurge on dessert. You deserve it. <laughs> Sounds great. All right. So you get, I don't know what your go-to dessert is, but for me, I think of two things. I think of either cheesecake or I think of chocolate cake a la mode. For me, a chocolate cake a la mode, there's nothing like it. And so you get that beautiful piece of chocolate cake dressed up real nice, and you're eating, and he gets his own dessert, and you're having a great time. And you're telling him, hey, man, thank, thanks so much for dinner. I, I appreciate it. Oh, yeah, no problem, man. He says, hey, you know what? I'll be right back. I just got to go use the bathroom real quick. Hey, no problem, dude. No problem. Not long after he leaves, the waiter comes with the check. And he says, oh, well, not a problem. My, my buddy's in the bathroom. He'll be right back. He'll pay the check. I'm like, no problem. But then 15 minutes pass. 30. And 45 minutes pass until you eventually realize he skipped out on you. 
So you pick up the bill, and of course it's humongous. Waiter begins to kind of nudge you gently and go, hey, we really need this table for next customers. I need you to kind of get moving. Okay, you know what? All right, reluctantly, you pay the bill. The next day, you get to school, and you find out that you didn't do as well on that test as you thought you did. Find out you didn't study quite as hard, but here's the problem. You still pass. Everything's good. Here's the problem. You and your friend got all the exact same questions wrong in the exact same way. Unfortunately for you, your teacher found your friend first. When he found your friend, your friend began to break down crying, talking about, I studied so hard for this test, and and Mr. So-and-so, I didn't want to let him cheat, but he begged me, and I was so afraid that that if he didn't, that if I didn't let him cheat, that I was going to lose his friendship, and and you got to believe me, and unfortunately, your teacher is moved by this fabricated story, and says, hey man, you know what, don't let it happen again, you're good to go. You, however, he's not so kind with. He's disgusted with you. And even though you try to explain to him the truth, you try to explain to him exactly what happened, he doesn't want to hear it. Oh, I've heard all this before. And he gives you a big fat zero on that test along with a healthy dose of disciplinary action. Say, Pastor Parker, what's the point of this story? The point of this story is that's exactly how the devil works. He makes all these extravagant promises. He makes all this big talk. He's really good at weaving together the fancy words to get you to believe that this sin is harmless. But at the end of the night, every single time, he's going to leave you to pay the tab. Every time. And you know what he'll always tell you? Don't worry, bud. I'll get the next one. Oh, don't worry. I got the next one. Hey, my bad. He's always going to convince you that next time, next time it'll be different. Hey, I know what happened to you last time, but trust, just trust me one more time. And every single time, he's going to leave you to pay the bill. He's going to leave you to pay for the consequences. Simple fact of the matter like we just said the devil knows what he's doing he's just praying you don't sin will always take you farther than you want to go keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay it's not a matter of if it will the illustration I've sometimes used with the teens is it's almost like the devil has taken a big old rug. He's got this huge hole. But he's taking a rug and he's putting a rug over that hole. And what he does is he stands underneath that, that rug and he holds it up. He holds that rug up and what he does is he sits back there and he waits for you to step on the rug. Of course, at first, you're kind of skeptical. You're kind of, you know, okay. Oh, seems, seems sturdy enough. He waits until you put all your weight on that rug, and then you know what he does? He steps out from under it. The number one thing we have to remember about the devil is that he is a liar, he is a master deceiver, and at any time we allow him to whisper in our ear, we're heading down a dangerous path. It's a door we dare not open. Why? Because it's just not worth it. 
It's not worth it to negotiate. It's not worth it to even allow yourself to get close to that. So Christian, let me just ask you tonight. Have you found yourself kind of negotiating on your standards and on your values? Have you found yourself questioning the Bible? Was that what that verse really means? Have you found yourself seeing, let's see how close I can get to the line without crossing it. Let's see how much I can play with my sin, play with fire and not get burned. Is there something tonight that you just simply need to close the book on and say, you know what, devil, I'm done. I'm not playing around with this anymore. I've let you stick around for far too long. I've let you mess with me. I've let you get in my head. No more. No more. I want you out, and I want you out now. Is there something you've been playing around with tonight? Something you just need to lay at God's feet and say, Lord, I don't want to mess around with this anymore. Help me. He's ready to. He wants to. He's seen the danger you're in from day one. He's not waiting to judge you. He's waiting to help you. He's waiting to give you the strength and the courage that you need to overcome it. But God's a gentleman. He's not going to force you to. But he does say if we'll come to him, he'll help us. Let's all stand with our our heads bowed and our eyes closed here this evening. Tonight, do you find yourself negotiating? Do you find yourself playing with fire? Do you find yourself negotiating with the devil? And so tonight, let me just encourage you. If there's something you need to be ta- that's, if there's something you need to take care of, some sin in your life that you say, you know what, I don't want to play with it anymore. I'm not going to let it stick around. Devil, I don't, I don't want you to have victory over me, not, not for another minute. Whether it's right there at your seat or down here at the altar, would you take care of business with God? Would you respond as he's spoken to your heart tonight? Whatever it might be, get it taken care of.
right, thank you. You can go ahead and be seated here tonight. Uh, I'll ask at this time if we could have, if 